There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Grant's microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? Pretty good. You know, I know that you had told me last night about the, the two shows uh, on NBC and also on uh, 2020. In regards to the Idaho case, Dateline NBC and uh, 2020, I did a show earlier on that. But there was really no new information that we hadn't reported on uh, since we had been covering that case since uh, November 13th when it occurred. But I think it's it was good that uh, two, of course, huge broadcast stations had uh, sort of spread the word to the whole country about what's going on with that case because it's, you know, even though we've been covering it since November 13th, it really is a horrific case and something that uh, it's going to stay with not just us and the University of Idaho and the families of the, of the four kids that were killed, but the entire nation and maybe the entire world. It's really a horrific case. Think about how powerful it was that two uh, independent networks had shows like uh, in the same time frame uh, about this story. That just gives you an idea of how uh, interested there is, uh, interest there is throughout the whole, not only the country, throughout the whole world. I mean, it's, uh, just such a horrific case. Uh, you know, so the kids so innocent slaughtered the way they were slaughtered. And now we're looking at obvious, uh, you know, signs of a serial killer, perhaps, uh, maybe stopped before he was able to kill more. So again, uh, I think everybody wants to find out, uh, as much detail as possible about Brian Kohlberger and about the four victims. And I think that uh, I didn't get to see much of uh, the two shows last night, but it seemed like there was a focus on the victims, which I like that uh, showing that there were real people. Uh, and again, uh, horrible, but uh, we'll stay tuned on it and uh, anything that pops out. And I'm sure we'll be right on top of it. You know, folks, I always hate to refer to them as the victims. So that's their names on the screen. Ethan Chapin. Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves, and God uh, rest their souls. And um, we're hoping that there'll be a, uh, a successful prosecution. You know, I always, I always say, you know, we we must say he's innocent to proven guilty. But I mean, I personally believe he's guilty. So it's hard for me to just keep saying that. But uh, you know, there, there's evidence that I find to be very, very powerful, and I'm sure they have much more evidence in this case than they've even released. So I know what people, when I don't say it, they get annoyed. Oh, he's innocent to proven guilty. I know that is our system and you're right. He is, but I believe he's guilty. So it's hard for me as a former NYPD sergeant uh, that's worked hundreds of murder cases and horrific robberies, shootings, stabbings, everything. It's hard for me to see someone that has this level of evidence and to say, Oh yes, it's, He's innocent to proven guilty every 10 minutes, you know. 
Uh, Billy, I'm glad you brought that up because there was a comment uh, on the last show that we did together about uh, the Idaho four victims. And um, again, there was a, a comment that said, uh, is there any possibility in your mind that uh, he's innocent? I think uh, us being professionals, being in uh, you know, uh, law enforcement, investigating homicides, investigating all these horrific crimes. We feel there's enough evidence that we believe he is guilty. However, again, in the criminal justice system in this country, you're innocent until proven guilty. And the burden is on the prosecution to prove that guilt. I think they're going to be able to do that. What they'll have to do is they're going to have to convince 12 jurors unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt that he's the one responsible for the murders of those four beautiful young college students. And uh, I think that uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, so difficult. However, professionalism is going to, uh, you know, shine through on how they get that conviction. Uh, they're working very hard on it. You have FBI, state police and local police, as well as the prosecutor's office. So uh, let's just, like you said, keep our fingers crossed and hope that everything turns out the right way that we get justice. And uh, in all minds, you know, we, we feel he's guilty. And uh, I think that most of the country does, however, still innocent until proven get that guilt. Absolutely. Uh, today's case we're going to be covering is the case of Anna Walsh, who disappeared. I believe she, the last day she was seen was... Um, January 1st, and her family and her uh, folks at work reported her missing on the 4th. This film seems like a classic case of domestic violence. Uh, it's It's been, um, you know, the whole thing with domestic violence in this case, it's been years since she's lived with a, a violent and a, uh, a husband that is a little bit off the wall. So I'm going to let you uh, introduce the, the case a little more, Phil, with some of the facts. Yeah. Uh, on January 1st was the last time that we noted she was seen alive. However, um, she had gone missing. The husband never reported her missing. However, there was a security team that where, where she worked, uh, got wind of the fact that she hadn't appeared to work. Uh, that security personnel, uh, contacted the husband and at that point contacted the police when he hadn't reported her missing. Uh, since she's been reported missing, uh, the statements that the husband Brian made to law enforcement were inconsistent. They found some uh, holes in his story. Uh, he was actually under house arrest for charges related to some uh, art that he sold that was uh, fake. I believe it was an Andy Warhol painting, uh, alleged to be an Andy Warhol painting painting. However, it was counterfeit. He was charged on that. He was waiting to be sentenced. He actually had an ankle monitoring bracelet on uh, during the period uh, that his wife went missing. And he uh, lied to the police and there was uh, information that he had gone to uh, a Home Depot. I believe it was around the 2nd of January where he purchased about $450 worth of cleaning supplies, a tarp, uh, different things that we refer to as possibly a, a cleanup kit or a murder kit. Um, and again, there was uh, a search warrant done at his house. Some blood was found in the basement of the home. Uh, there was also a uh, knife that uh, had a broken tip that was also found. And then subsequent to that, there was some bloody articles found uh, at a garbage transfer station, a waste transfer station. Uh, I believe it was a rug with some blood on it. There was also a hacksaw. So again, they're all indications are that uh, the wife may not be alive and perhaps uh, in the days going forward, uh, her remains may be recovered. Uh, he also went on his computer and researched how to dispose of a 115 pound body 
so again, all of those things pointing in his direction. He had a little bit of a sketchy past. As we know, I said he was under uh, house arrest for criminal charges related to that Andy Warhol painting. He also was diagnosed as a sociopath some years back at the Austin Riggs Psych Center in Massachusetts. I just want to give a quick uh, definition of a sociopath. is a person with personality disorder manifesting itself into extreme antisocial attitudes and behavior and a lack of conscience. So if you are diagnosed as a uh, sociopath and you uh, have those tendencies, obviously you can see that uh, it could turn to violence in a domestic violence situation. And that's what appears to have happened here. Yeah, you know, there were signs of domestic violence as far back, I think, as 2004. And, you know, uh, I always... <laughs> I mean, it's easy for me to say, but, uh, you know, domestic violence is something that no one should put up with, whether it's a man or a woman. You should never, ever let someone abuse you or hit you. That's signs that the relationship has to go, you know. And uh, she obviously probably put up with this for years, and she was no slouch. This lady was an executive with Tishman Spire that owned buildings all over in it. She was an executive. She, her office was in Washington, D.C., I'm going to play a little bit of the timeline. It also give us a little bit of a, a frame of what this is about. Rocked the tiny seaside town the family called home and captured the attention of the world. What started as a missing persons case is turning into something potentially much more sinister. And at the center of the mystery is Anna's husband, Brian Walsh. This week, police charged Walsh with misleading investigators. He's being held in jail on $500,000 bail. This surveillance video of Brian is from a juice bar in Norwell. Police say he told investigators he went there on January 2nd. He also told police it was the only place that he went that day. But investigators say that was not true and uncovered video of Brian several hours later at a nearby Home Depot buying Tyvek, tarps, buckets, drop cloths, and cleaning supplies. I-team sources say trash taken from a dumpster at Brian's mother's Swampscott condominium complex was searched by police at a Peabody transfer station. There, sources say investigators found trash bags containing a hacksaw, a hatchet, a rug, used cleaning supplies, and blood. All of it and the DNA now being tested at the state's crime lab. The I-team also uncovered a police report on a filed in Washington, D.C. before the couple was married. In that 2014 report, Anna claimed Brian threatened to kill her and her friends over the phone. No charges were filed because Anna refused to cooperate with police. Meantime, the Walsh's three young children are in the custody of the state and are facing an uncertain future. Here's how it all began. As the calendar turned from 2022 to 2023, something appeared to be happening in the Walsh home. What started with the New Year's Eve celebration turned into a desperate search for Anna. This is the timeline of what we've learned so far. December 31st, New Year's Eve. Brian Walsh and his wife Anna had dinner with their friend, Jem Mutlu. There was no indication of anything other than celebrating the new year. After that celebration dinner, Walsh allegedly told police that Anna, who worked as a property manager in D.C., had a work emergency. She went to bed around 1 a.m. and planned to fly to D.C. the next morning. Friends say their Happy New Year messages were never returned. January 1st, 2023. 
New Year's Day. Walsh allegedly tells police he last saw his wife between 4 and 6 a.m., claiming Anna left the house in an Uber or Lyft to the airport. But police say Anna did not get a ride share and did not board a flight to D.C. 7 a.m., police say Walsh got up to make breakfast for the couple's three boys. At the same time, a babysitter arrived at the Cohasset home. Walsh tells police he went to run errands and headed to CVS and Whole Foods for his mother. But prosecutors say there are no receipts or surveillance video showing Walsh at either store. January 2nd, 2023. Prosecutors say sometime after 4 p.m., Walsh, wearing a black mask and surgical gloves, is seen on surveillance video at Home Depot in Rockland. He's on surveillance at that time, purchasing about $450 worth of cleaning supplies. That would include mops, bucket, tops, um, TVEX, uh, drop cloths, uh, as well as various kinds of tape. At the same time, Anna's cell phone pinged in the area of the Cohasset home. January 4th, 2023. Washington, D.C. co-workers notify police that Anna did not show up for work. We received simultaneous reports from her employer in Washington, D.C., as well as her husband. Walsh's lawyer says he also called friends looking for her. Good afternoon, it's uh, Brian Walsh. I hope all is going well. Um, I was just, just reaching out to basically everybody I could. Um, Anna hasn't been in touch for a few days. Do you know anyone that might have had contact with her? Uh, just, uh, you know, calling everyone. So uh, sorry to bother you. I'm sure everything's fine. January 6th, 2023. Police drained the pool in the backyard and searched the woods near the Walsh's home. Later, a fire breaks out at a home on Jerusalem Road, a house formerly owned by Anna Walsh. The cause is determined to be accidental, and fire officials call the blaze a strange coincidence. January 8th, 2023, police arrest Brian Walsh, charging him with misleading investigators. Police armed with a search warrant search the home. Blood was found in the basement area, as well as a knife, which also contained some blood. January 9th, 2023, Walsh appears in court and pleads not guilty to misleading the investigation. His attorney says he's cooperating with police. Mr. Walsh has given several interviews. We have consented to searches of his home. We have consented to searches of his property. We have consented to searches of his cell phone. Hours later, I-Team sources say investigators searching through trash taken to a transfer facility in Peabody from a dumpster at Walsh's mother's Swampscott condominium find garbage bags with a hatchet, a hacksaw, used cleaning equipment, and blood. Her Amazing, right? I think, you know, based on what I'm hearing there, they have enough to, to arrest him right now. I, th I think they have probable cause. They're probably waiting because uh, they're in no rush because he's being held on that exactly. other charge. Exactly. But if he uh, were granted, well, they, I think they said a half a million dollar bond. Uh, but if he was to get out, I think they would pull the trigger and arrest him on this. Another interesting thing is that uh, Anna was starting to liquidate her properties. She apparently owned numerous properties. So, which is an indication she was probably getting ready to leave him. And perhaps he knew that, and that may have, in his crazy mind, forced his hand 
to do what he did. Who knows, Billy, but I just want to piggyback one thing that you said early on about domestic violence. Even the threat of violence in a relationship doesn't have to be that you get battered or you get banged around before you should leave. If you get the threat of being harmed or violence, that's something that's like a a major red flag that you need to get out of that relationship and seek help. Uh, Just wanted to get that in there. But again, all of those things that were pointed out in that video you just played, Bill, there's a ton of evidence there. There's some circumstantial evidence. And I think you're right, Billy. There's probably enough right now to charge uh, Brian with the murder of Anna. And I think that, uh, like you said, he's in custody. He's not going anywhere. They have him in on a half a million dollars bond. They already have those other charges pending. So there's probably no rush to make that arrest. They're probably looking to see if they could recover the remains at this point, which I hate to even speak about that, That, uh, but it's, it seems clear that she's no longer with us. Uh, so, and again, I feel terrible for those three young children. Um, you know, when you have someone that had such a strained relationship, uh, you know, uh, antisocial behavior, had strained relationship with his own father. Uh, there were stories about that in the newspaper. Uh, again, uh, all of this leading up to this horrible situation. But uh, I do think that uh, at this point there is enough, and I, I'm sure there's mo- a lot more work being done regarding Uh, You know, the DNA evidence that was recovered, uh, cell phone technology. Again, we talk about video surveillance, traffic cameras, all of that stuff. His movements are going to be pretty easy to track at this point. Again, he he did have that ankle monitoring bracelet on. And again, if he had his cell phone. So I think they're going to be able to figure out some locations that they can search for remains. And perhaps they will come up with the uh, remains of this uh, of this victim. You know, folks, what uh, Phil was referring to in regards to the domestic violence thing, we covered a lot of cases here. One in particular that sticks out is the Gabby Petito case. And if if you uh, followed that case, so even read the Vanity Fair article on it that came out in June, she was an abused, she was beaten down mentally. And, you know, uh, Brian Laundry was was sort of a weak individual, but but could dominate a 115 pound female that allegedly he was in love with and was engaged to. But he absolutely beat her down mentally, and I I think that that had she lived, she would absolutely have left him because he showed signs, all the signs of being an abusive uh, person, and you know I I. I hate to bring up this case, but I'm just trying to draw a parallel to this. But Brian Laundry was his family were, were shitheads too, and to use his mother and his father both covered up for him after they knew that he killed her. So I mean, they're bad. They're bad people in my mind, and people you can disagree with me. His mother even volunteered to get him a shovel to bury her. I mean, how horrific were they? They knew what he had done, and they still were trying to cover it up. So, you know, domestic violence takes many paths. It has many enablers. And I'm not, we're not going to oversimplify it and say, oh, she should have left. We know it's difficult. And there's a type of of, um, syndrome called Stockholm syndrome. And I believe that also exists in domestic violence where someone just identifies with their abuser and allows it to go on. Stockholm syndrome, of course, was from uh, kidnappers that after a while identified with their kidnappers, even to the point where they helped them. And I can you can draw a parallel between a kidnap victim and a domestic violence victim and using Stockholm Syndrome. 
Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, a lot of these abusers, they uh, architect a relationship where they isolate the person from other people. And again, that was one of the things that happened in the Gabby Petito case, where when she wanted to go out with her friends, Brian would steal her identification. So she couldn't go to a bar with her friends and different things like that. And it's all part of the domestic violence uh, profile, uh, isolation, uh, perhaps uh, in this case, uh, Brian Walsh got wind of the fact that she was going to sell off these properties like you were talking about earlier. And the indicators were there that she was going to leave him and he may have reacted. Now, there was something uh, kind of cryptic about the situation where there was a message written on a champagne box uh, related to 2022 and 2023. Uh, it hasn't been 100% determined if Anna wrote that message, but I'm going to read the message. It's uh, a note on a champagne box and it says, wow, 2022, what a year. And yet we are still together. Let's make 2023 the best one yet. We are the author of our lives, courage, love, perseverance, compassion, and joy. Love Anna. Now, could that have been a perhaps red herring that he put out there to throw off investigators that they were in this wonderful relationship that she was looking forward to 2023, or was it a real message that, uh, that Anna wrote again? Uh, we don't know for certain if that was her handwriting, but I'm sure that's being looked into. Nick in the chat, this case reminds me of the Dulos case in Connecticut. Yes. Fotis Dulos was suspected uh, of killing his wife and she was never found. He killed himself, leaving the children behind. Tragic, tragic case. Yes, very, very similar to that, uh, to that case. You know, here's uh, this woman, Anna Walsh. I think she was from Serbia. A very accomplished person, beautiful uh, human being. I mean, uh, physically beautiful, but also accomplished in her field, which was real estate. And, like, you wonder, you know, she dominated in her field. She was so good at it. But how did she get dominated by this man in her relationship? Uh, those are some of the questions. I'm like, I can't answer it. That's a sort of a rhetorical question. But she was dominated by this domineering and scary. The guy looks scary, you know, physically threatening. And um, these are some of the questions we have. And, and of course, rhetorical, uh, because this is what uh, domestic violence looks like. You know, Billy, when you think about it, you're making a really good point that someone who was, you know, as accomplished as her could be trapped in this type of relationship. But again, you know, maybe in the beginning part of the relationship, there was no signs of it. He may have uh, showered her with gifts or showed a lot of love and affection. And then once you put the component of the three children involved, and I think that uh, uh, a woman's instinct, a motherly instinct to protect the children, perhaps that's what may have trapped her in the relationship to try and make things work for the sake of the children, keep the family together. I'm not sure if that's the case, but that's what I'm thinking at this point. And, you know, when you have a, a situation with three children, uh, you know, she has to now, if she's going to separate herself from him, be able to provide for those kids and, you know, a long maybe battle in, in family court and stuff like that. Those are the components that may have kept her, you know, staying in, in this relationship with Brian. Karen Kennedy, uh, thank you for uh, volunteering this or uh, sharing this with us. I live with a narcissistic husband, learning much about it. The nice mask comes off, especially when the partner decides to leave. It's the ultimate form of control taking a life, which I learned from here. 
Karen, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's it, look, we we never try to make light of domestic violence and people that are caught in really bad relationships, how difficult it is to get out. Clearly, Anna Walsh was planning her exit from this relationship. She had even called Serbia and her mother and her sister and her friends to come here and to help her. She was that much in distress. You know, the thing is with these situations, you cannot let them go on and on and on because it never gets better. It always gets worse and it escalates. And uh, that's why when, when you, when, and it's again, easy for me to say this, but when you see the sign of it, that's the, that's when you got to get out right Absolutely. in the beginning. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that when you talk about a sociopath, that's one of the components of being a sociopath is narcissism. And again, that uh, that last comment, I just hope that that woman can, uh, you know, recognize it and maybe get some help. There are services out there. You don't think that there are, but there are plenty of services. And if you need that help, uh, you should definitely seek it. Call your local police. Uh, there's uh, a lot of different uh, groups that will help uh, when you're stuck in a uh, in a bad domestic violence situation. The best way to do that is to uh, use your feet, walk away, get the Absolutely. hell out of there. You Good know? point, Billy. Good Accusing point. her husband of threatening to kill her and her friend. CNN is reporting the 2014 incident happened in Washington, D.C. before the couple was married. The case was reportedly closed for lack of victim cooperation. Anna Walsh was reported missing on January 4th. The 39-year-old was last seen early New Year's Day. Police arrested her husband, Brian Walsh, earlier this week on a charge of misleading investigators. Prosecutors say a bloody knife was found in the family's basement shortly after the husband spent hundreds of dollars on cleaning supplies. Joining us to talk more about the investigation is retired FBI Special Agent Mary Ellen O'Toole. She worked in the Behavioral Analysis Unit and is now the Director of Forensic Sciences at George Mason. She, Phil, she was also all over the uh, the yeah, Idaho case. She yeah. was, uh, she, she's actually very good. She's a professor but, and former FBI. So out of a lot of the behavioral analysts that we heard commenting on the, um, the Idaho quadruple case, she was perhaps one of the best University. Mary Ellen, welcome. Give us some insight into the pace of this investigation, how it's moving along here, and what authorities are still looking for to piece this case together. Well, this is going to be a very challenging case for the investigators because if they ultimately don't find a body, they have to be able to show that the victim did not voluntarily go missing because it's not a crime if you voluntarily go missing as an adult. So they're looking at three categories of things. They're looking for physical evidence, and that means DNA, hairs, fibers, fingerprints. They're looking for um, the technology. They're looking for cameras and cell phone information. And then they're establishing something that's equally as important, and that is a personality assessment of the victim, and they're looking for that victim's patterns of behavior. So in other words, they want to be able to present to the jury, this is someone that would not voluntarily go missing, and here are their patterns of behavior, and here were their future plans going down the road. So those three categories are critical, and that takes time to be able to put all of that together. We've heard uh, or learned more about Anna's husband, Brian, who's, who's already been charged with 
misleading investigators. He's awaiting sentencing in a federal case. You know, I just want to comment on, on that misleading investigators. I know we in the NYPD, we didn't have that charge. No. We could charge someone, They could, if they filed a report and you could prove it was a false report, we could uh, arrest them for that. But we couldn't arrest them for lying to us. That's something the FBI also has that. And I was unaware that a local police department could have a charge like that, but I guess it's in there, must be in the state of Massachusetts penal law that that's a charge, but it's not a charge in, in New York City. It sounds like a local statute, Bill, and you're right about that. You can't lie to an FBI agent. It's a federal offense. However, we always had that uh, little bit of a stumbling block. If a person lied to us, we couldn't charge them with that. However, you did make the point. If you report someone missing and you can prove that they're not missing, again, falsely reporting an incident misdemeanor charge can be applied. Well, if, if, if it's a false report, I mean, a lot of people will report false crimes sometimes to cover up something else. Right. And if you can prove it's false, for example, they said, I was at this location at this exact time, and you check video, and they were nowhere near there, you can uh, disprove their claim, and, and you make you have them make the report, and then you disprove the report, and you lock them up for uh, filing a false report. It's done all the time in New York City. Right. In the meantime, friends and family are speaking to his character. They're calling him everything from angry and violent to a, quote, sociopath. So what's your take on him and how much weight will those statements in his past carry in this case? And also, you know, the circumstantial evidence of the cleaning supplies, mm -hmm. I think that just kind of spoke volumes to me as, as a viewer. Yes, that's very compelling. And first to the opinions of friends and acquaintances. If their opinions were put into an affidavit, an affidavit is like raising your right hand in court. You swear to tell the truth. So that becomes important. Um, and that would become important to prosecutors. However, when it comes to using a term like sociopath, I have some issues with that. That's an old fashioned term. So if someone that was just a friend or an acquaintance of the offender used that term, that could just be throwing a label out there in order to be assessed as a sociopath, the new term is psychopath. The old term hasn't been used for, you know, 45 years. Um, that's why I think people are just throwing that label out there. That that assessment, that label would have to come from a qualified psychological um, or psychiatric expert. So we have to be careful of labels where they're coming from and if they're in an affidavit. Now, relative to the blood um, and the um, some of the uh, tears and shreds and some of the cleaning supplies, that's going to be important if they proceed and they charge this case because it does show that um, there's some element of planning here, but it has to be demonstrated that that blood is belongs to the victim. That is the victim's blood. That is the the um, the ultimate criteria criteria. So. You know, one of the things I expect someone to ask um, soon, and I'll ask it because no one's asked it yet, can uh, a district attorney get a conviction for murder without a body? And the answer you know, to the that answer, is yeah. yes, is absolutely yes. And when we talk about circumstantial evidence, um, the definition of circumstantial evidence is evidence of which in, uh, you, you can infer from. Uh, and the thing is, is that circumstantial evidence, a lot of it piled up on top of each other 
is very, very strong evidence. It's very strong. Uh, so circumstances, uh, evidence for which assumptions, in essence, inferrals can be made, you can infer based on all of this evidence. You know, they find him $450 worth of cleaning uh, cleaning materials. Does that mean he killed his wife? No. No. But it's, pre it's pretty strong evidence that he was looking to clean something up, searching on the computer how to get rid of a 120-pound uh, body. Does that mean he killed his wife? No. Put that next to the cleaning fluids, right? Finding the knife in the basement, a bloody knife and other bloody instances. Does that mean he killed his wife? No. But now you have three strong pieces of circumstantial evidence. Pile that on top of each other. Present that to a jury. Nana617, thank you so much for the $20 super chat. Love you guys and God bless. Thank you thank so you much. Man. We really appreciate it. No, no. So, Phil, like that, I think that you can't explain circumstantial evidence any better than that. And and as you present it to people, and you pile it up on each other, they're like, "Wow, yeah, you're right. It is pretty strong." Well, there's going to be a lot more because now we have. Let's talk about the items that he bought in Home Depot. Uh, a top. Now, if they can tie the top to what was recovered in the garbage transfer station, and it has this blood on it. Apparently, a DNA test will tell if it's Anna's blood. And then there's another component about blood evidence. You know, I wish we had Ed Wallace on because he'd probably be able to speak to this in a very expert fashion. But I think we're going to try to kidnap Ed Wallace from duty run. Yeah, we, we got to do that. But the, the point I was trying to make is, you know, when blood is recovered, you can tell uh, by the examination of this blood, if it came from an artery or if it's just, you know, like, let's say a paper cut or something like that. So again, we'll be able to establish that if there's enough of that blood that's found at that transfer station and the blood that's in the basement, if it's blood that came from an artery that the conclusion that she's no longer alive could be made. So again, we'll be able to establish that. Now, if the body is never recovered. Like you said, Bill, there's a lot of different evidences all piling up and you're going to have the different things that are taken from Home Depot and you're going to have the items recovered in the transport transfer station. Those items can be connected. You have the research on how to uh, dispose of a 115 or 120 pound body. Now, were some of those uh, things that were researched Perhaps used, like, did it say to cut the body up and use a hacksaw? They said they recovered a hacksaw. They, they recovered a hatchet. Does it mention that? So, again, you're going to be connecting all these little pieces of circumstantial evidence together to get people on a jury, 12 people, to come to a decision beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the real key, the word reasonable. It has to be stuff that would be to a reasonable person that sounds likely. So, again, I don't think that... Uh, just one thing in particular, let's say the Home Depot items alone are going to be enough to convict. But when you put all these other pieces together and you can come up with a profile of a person that possibly had, uh, uh, you know, domestic violence tendencies, uh, sociopath tendencies, again, you're going to be able to get to that point where you'll be able to get a conviction. Another piece of circumstantial evidence, he paid for the, all those cleaning supplies in cash. Right. Tom wearing gloves, too. He was wearing gloves when he was buying the items again and, and a mask and a yeah. mask. Well, the, the mask, you can, you can probably explain that away with COVID, but he's wearing gloves. What was the purpose of that? You know, inside of a location, it's not that cold inside of a home Depot that you need gloves. Right. Tom Cusinelli, the pattern jury instructions give descriptions or examples 
to help jurors. Very simple and understandable. Well, Thanks point, for man. pointing that out, Tom. Uh, I think everything is made simple for jurors to understand the law. It's explained to them in their instructions, uh, you know, prior to going into deliberations, it's explained. Yeah, I mean, look, this these cases are so, so sad because you know that Anna wanted out. She wanted out of this. She knew she was in a bad situation. She made some moves to get out, and it was too late. She waited, perhaps waited too long. And she knew she was in trouble uh, based on the fact that she called her mom and her sister and a, a friend in Serbia. She begged them to come here. So she knew that she was in really uh, real, real trouble. Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, when you're talking about last seen alive on New Year's Day, perhaps, you know, maybe uh, alcohol could have been involved in the uh, the spark that set off the homicidal rage. Uh, you know, things can escalate pretty quickly in a, a domestic violence situation. But when you add the component of perhaps alcohol, I mean, I'm not saying that that's the case. But again, you have to look at that. Eh? You know, maybe they're celebrating New Year's Day. And again, that's another piece that you brought up, that she contacted her mom in Serbia and asked her, "Come, can you come here now? And that was in the days before the murder. So again, another maybe cry for help right there, another piece of circumstantial evidence. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, interviews being done with the mom and other relatives uh, may yield some other uh, things that we don't know about the relationship between Brian and Anna. Absolutely. You know, uh, folks in the chat are talking about this, that what someone just said, uh, is it me or does it seem like there's more of these domestic violence um, murders in the last few years? You know, years ago, uh, the police didn't have such strict guidelines in response to domestic violence as when an arrest was mandated. And now almost every time you go to a domestic violence or a threat of domestic violence or harassment, uh, an assault, a disorderly conduct, and uh, in the Family Court Act, disorderly conduct can actually happen in not in a public place, which is one of the requirements if it's out on the street. Uh, reckless endangerment, menacing, those are all the Family Court Act uh, the acronym was HADOM, harassment, assault, disorderly conduct, uh, attempted assault, reckless endangerment, and menacing. The police have very little um, room, uh, uh, leeway in these cases when they respond. If someone was assaulted, they have to make an arrest. And that has prevented the escalation of a lot of domestic violence because what happens is when someone's arrested for domestic violence, the judge automatically issues an order of protection. And not that an order of protection will protect you, but it will allow for the defendant, if he violates it, to be arrested much more easily than the first time. So that's why we don't see as many domestic violence homicides. It would seem like we are seeing a lot more of them now. Uh, but in reality, numbers-wise, they, they have gone down a great deal from past years. You know, Billy, uh, what you're talking about uh, rings to me, uh, the Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman double homicide that was committed by O.J. Simpson. Uh, post that particular case, that's when uh, I could remember the domestic violence cases 
the way that we handled them definitely changed. There was uh, a protocol before that where if a person was complaining of domestic violence, it could be referred off to court if they didn't want to press charges. However, after that case, the state became the uh, person that would prosecute the case would be the uh, complainant on it. Uh, if you had a, a domestic violence case and the victim didn't want to press charges, they would still go ahead with charges to get that person into custody. Uh, they felt that it was a cooling out period and could prevent a possible situation where it can turn even more violent. And again, at uh, you know, uh, like you said, there's a, a, at court a, 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 an order of protection is issued for that victim uh, where the person that uh, is abusing them has to stay away. Uh, and it also offered services, domestic violence services to that victim. So again, there was a big push to protect victims of domestic violence post that case. And we felt the changes in the detective bureau around that time of that case. Scott, Sergeant, didn't that change on our job to the primary aggressor if there were no injuries? Scott, you could be 100% right because I'm talking uh, from 11 years ago, 12 years ago when I was on the job. I just know when I was a patrol sergeant, when I responded to a, a case of domestic violence or a threat of domestic violence or the potential that there was domestic violence, I always erred on the side of making an arrest because I never felt comfortable walking away from a potential domestic violence incident. And I always feared that I'll walk away and I don't arrest someone. Say it was it was a little fugazi or it was, uh, there was some gray area there. I use a I use a Brooklynism fugazi. Um, I would err on the side of making an arrest because I felt much better uh, being able to sleep at night if I took someone out in cuffs based on what I perceived as a violation, even if it was if it was close. The tie goes to the runner here. The tie went to the police department. You're getting arrested because I don't feel comfortable walking away from this because it could escalate and you can wind up killing uh, killing your significant other. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that all of the things that have been put in place to protect victims of domestic violence are very, very good. Uh, I applaud them. And again, uh, it does seem like there's a lot of uh, domestic violence murders going on as of late, but I think there's just more of a focus on them. And again, cases like this, uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, much effort in, you know, trying to, you know, uh, be, do it where it's the perfect crime. I mean, this guy made a million mistakes and I, I just, I can't get my mind around the psyche of I'm going to kill my wife and I'm going to get away with it. It's not going to happen. So again, uh, I recognize that. Why doesn't someone like Brian recognize that? And again, they, they throw away their lives for such, uh, you know, things that, uh, you know, go get yourself some help. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's just so many things that uh, could be said about this case. And, uh, it's just terrible that those three children are left without a mother and, uh, the other relatives and the family members are left without Anna. And it's, it's just, uh, it's a terrible thing. And I wish there was really an answer to it. However, there really isn't, it doesn't seem to be, there's just the protocols and different uh, procedures that we can put into place to try and help and, uh, and protect and prevent these things from happening. Scott, uh, by the way, th I, I guess you're an NYPD officer. Thank you uh, for your input. I appreciate it. You and, that. you know, I'm, uh, they call me, they call me, someone called me Pop the other day. Well, we <laughs> I took pop. great umbrage at that. I, I said, that's Sergeant Pop to you, you know, but uh, yeah. yeah, can I be recognized as a dinosaur? That's what they used to call the old timers on the police department. A dinosaur. I'm a retired dinosaur. You Karen Kennedy. You're old now, Billy. Come on. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I'm not old. I'm just uh, you know, older than most cops. Uh, Karen Kennedy, thank you so much for the 90, 99 Super Sticker. Very much appreciated. I hope we helped you uh, with our advice, uh, Karen. And uh, There's help out there, Karen. If you need help, there is help. Reach out. Absolutely. Let me play a little bit of this here. Add this to the stream. Massachusetts mom has been missing since New Year's Day, but authorities say they have found more evidence and none of it bodes well. A search of a garbage dump has turned up clues that may be connected to Anna Walsh's disappearance. This while her husband remains behind bars, charged with hampering the investigation. Police searching for clues in the missing mom case say they discovered a hatchet buried in the garbage. 39-year-old Anna Walsh has been missing since New Year's Day. Her smirking husband, Brian Walsh, is charged with misleading police, but not with murder. In addition to the hatchet, Massachusetts police digging their way through the heap of garbage at a transfer station 15 miles from Walsh's mother's house also reportedly found evidence of blood, a hacksaw, a rug, and used cleaning products. Steve Cooper is a reporter for WHDH in Boston. Now, all this possible evidence is being looked at by investigators, and they're trying to sort of get a DNA profile here and determine whether these items are connected to the disappearance of Anna Walsh. The mystery of what happened to the mom of three is riveting America, appearing on CNN this morning to talk about Inside Edition's 35th anniversary, Deborah was asked about the case. Across the board, the story that Brian Walsh has told investigators since his wife was last seen by someone outside the family has simply not added up to what the facts are that they're developing. Cops have also searched a dumpster at Walsh's mother's home. Walsh told police he drove there the day his wife was last seen. They did find a dumpster behind her condo complex. They seized that dumpster. Walsh only reported his wife Anna missing last Wednesday, three days after she was last seen. The missing woman's mother, who lives in Serbia, was quoted as saying her daughter reached out to her a week before her disappearance and begged her to fly to the USA and visit her. She just said, please, mama, come tomorrow, which means that clearly there must have been some problems. Brian Walsh was already on house arrest after being found guilty of fraud after selling two fake Andy Warhol paintings. He's currently awaiting sentencing in that case. Yeah, these these uh, these cases are very, very sad. Uh, I mean, especially uh, when you know that they could have been prevented. But, you know, the, the only way they could be prevented, the person who's involved in this situation has to take action themselves. You can't count on the police you can't count on detectives you can't count on your friends you got to count on yourself so you have to know that you're in a bad situation perhaps get counseling get advice but you got to get the hell out of there because look look what happened here and to think that this guy kills his wife if in fact he did and he leaves his three young sons without a mother i mean that's really sort of depraved indifference right there Hundred percent, Billy depraved. And again, that statement a week before she is uh, missing uh, to her mom, uh, "Come, can you come today? Come immediately." Uh, that sounds like a cry for help. Perhaps it wasn't so direct. She didn't say, "Come, I need help. My husband's abusing me." But there is, uh, if you read into it, there is sounds like a cry for help there. I would like to, you know, and I'm sure the police are looking into uh, her cell phone, her social media. 
Uh, perhaps there were text messages, uh, maybe to a, a friend or a confidant that could also shed light on uh, her disappearance, you know? So I'm sure all of those things are being done. It's just a sad, sad uh, situation. And, um, you know, all of the things that he bought in that Home Depot, uh, they talked about tape, they talked about tops, all of that stuff really, you know, it leads to and makes you believe that perhaps he disposed of her. Uh, again, uh, I think they'll be able to perhaps figure out what his movements were on the day that they think that uh, he did, did the uh, disposing. So there still is hope that they can recover her remains. And uh, I think at that point, obviously, there'd be some charges of uh, murder against him. Well, I, I think I think they have enough right now uh, to charge him. But, uh, oh, that one's looking crazy. <laughs> I think they have enough to charge him right now. However, I think they want to wait until they, in fact, recover the body before they do such. Justice, that department at University of New Haven. Thank you so much for being here with us. Certainly. Uh, good morning. Good morning. And we are hearing a lot of these social media sleuths that are coming in. So the question is, how do you separate fact from fiction at this point? So uh, web sleuths have uh, become especially involved in cases here in recent years. Uh, they sometimes produce uh, useful leads. However, in this particular case, the police are hot on the trail uh, of uh, being able to, to tie uh, the husband of Anna into uh, her uh, potential murder. It's hard to make a case without a body, but it's not impossible. And so uh, the police are very methodically going along, uh, uh, identifying uh, potential evidence, sending evidence off to the lab, and uh, getting ready to indict Brian Walsh uh, before a grand jury there. But first, they need to get the forensic evidence back from the lab and be able to show that it's uh, forensic evidence associated with Anna uh, before they do that. And that's the question is, do they have enough evidence at this point? Because we do know that Brian Walsh, they are trying to, it does appear, hold him there with that misleading uh, police charge. Is that what they're doing until they can gather enough evidence? Are they waiting for, as you mentioned, the grand jury to uh, indict him? Right. That's exactly what they're doing is, is that they, they were able to arrest him on misleading police uh, charges. Uh, he was already under house arrest over his uh, art forgery cells. Uh, um, and so uh, holding him is necessary to keep him from leaving the country uh, while they put together their case. I, I think they are starting to get very close. Of course, if they were able, able to locate her body, that would make this a done deal. But the fact that uh, they have yet to discover her body, this is going to be a little bit more difficult, but not impossible. Would you be surprised, and it seems like a lot of people have asked this question, if Anna was actually alive and the husband was not involved? Is that even a possibility at this point? Well, at this point, uh, that has to be considered a possibility but it depends upon the, uh, the forensic evidence. That is, if it's shown that the blood in the uh, basement is Anna's, if it shows that the blood on the knife is Anna's, if it turns out that the hatchet that was found uh, at the uh, refuge state, at the transfer station, uh, had blood on it that was Anna's, then all of this information starts piling up to make it more likely than not that something and I will be as naive. At this point, 
So with regards to that, but as the forensic evidence mounts up, you start believing that that to be the case. So at this point, are you surprised at how much information was released earlier this week when Brian Walsh was in court? The prosecutors went right into it and explained basically everything that it appears they know at this point. They went into great detail. I feel like we don't get. You know, I, I don't think there was any doubt that, uh, you know, this was a one suspect case, you know, right from the beginning. Uh, the evidence pointed to the husband. So uh, I don't think the, I mean, it seems like he's trying to compare this to uh, the Idaho case. It's not even in the same, same league, you know, right away. I think the evidence pointed toward the husband. Well, first question, why didn't he report her missing on the 2nd of January or the 1st of January when, he, when she was last seen, he claimed that uh, he lost contact with her on that day that she had some emergency at work and she had to leave. It took till the 4th when she didn't show up at work and security personnel at the location where she worked notified the police. And then in conjunction with them notifying, he contacts the police. That's suspicious in and of itself. And I'm sure that's why the first person that they looked at would be the husband. Absolutely. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like Real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And being in the right place, please subscribe to us. Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, and share us with your friends. Make comments. Uh, hit that algorithm for us. We also have a, a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us. And we also have YouTube channel memberships, and you can see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube family, friends, subscribers, uh, and uh, we really appreciate all of them. Phil, I, I just think that, uh, you know, unfortunately, this case is not going to end happily. No. Um, I don't believe that uh, that Anna is alive at this point. And um, I think at this point, judging on what I'm hearing right now, again, I said it early on, I think they have enough to arrest him right now for this, for the, uh, for the murder. And we can't say it's a murder because they haven't recovered the body, but at some point they're going to pull the trigger on this. Absolutely, Billy. And I agree with you 100%. The good thing about this case, if there is any good, is that he made a million mistakes. He put himself in a trick bag for this. Uh, I'm going to call it a murder. It appears that she's not alive. And, and you know, the chances are uh, that it's going to be a homicide investigation if it's not being handled that way now, which I'm sure it is. So again, uh, he did make a lot of mistakes. Um, he's going to be held accountable for this, uh, whether or not, uh, the arrest is made, you know, for, with the charges of murder today, tomorrow, or next week is really, uh, undetermined at this point. But again, like we said, he's in custody. He's not going anywhere. They know where his whereabouts are. And all they can do now is just build and build and build on the case that's eventually going to be, uh, brought against him. Absolutely. Phil, I just want you to. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe's a big supporter of police off-the-cuff real crime stories and a terrific criminal defense attorney. Absolutely. You know, folks, the, the, these cases, you know, 
just covering these cases, you may think that, you know, we're, um, we're tough and hardened uh, homicide investigators. And, you know, even covering these cases, believe it or not, has an effect on you, you know. And uh, that Idaho case, of course, and the, the Gabby Petito case, um, the one that Eliza Fletcher, I, you guys remember that one, the, the jogger in Memphis that was kidnapped right off the street and almost immediately murdered by a, a sex offender who or just, they were just horrific. Some of these cases, you know, they really hit you almost the same way they did when I was the real police, you know, and uh, it's uh, covering these, if we can help people understand uh, or, or warn people about some of these things and create consciousness about crime and protecting yourself and how real investigations are done and educate our, our fans, our viewers, our friends, then I think uh, we're doing a pretty damn good job. What do you think, Phil? Absolutely, Billy. Couldn't agree with you more. These cases are emotional. They tug at your heartstrings. You and I have both been choked up on different occasions talking about uh, whether it be Gabby Petito, Summer Welds, uh, any of the other cases that we've covered, uh, you know, uh, th that poor jogger that was murdered. I mean, that was just such a horrendous case. And on and on we go, the Idaho case. These cases, uh, even though we're not, uh, you know, within the case, we're not, uh, you know, intimately involved in the investigation. We're from a peripheral. But again, you do, you get to know these people. You get to feel the pain of what these families are going through. And it does take a little uh, toll on you. But uh, that's what we did as uh, our careers in law enforcement. And uh, we're going to keep keep doing it now and uh, trying to, you know, like you said, educate our fans, our subscribers, and just give people an idea of what's going on in these cases and how you get from standing over a dead body to uh, a conviction for murder. Absolutely. Holly Nudie, thank you for the $5 super chat. Thank you. I hope Anna's friends can take their kids until her mother arrives. I think uh, one or a couple of her friends have volunteered to do that. Right now, they're actually, the poor kids are in the custody of uh, child welfare, which is not a good place to be, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I agree. I think her friends have volunteered. I hope that they take them up on it, or not, at least until uh, Anna's family gets here from Serbia and they could uh, could take the kids. You know, here's a situation where not only do they lose their mother, but and even though we're not very sympathetic to it, they lose their father too. And explain that to you. I think the kids are like, four, five, and six or something, the three young boys, just horrific. How do you explain that to a kid that age? How do you explain it to anyone? You know, uh, That's a tough one, Billy. That's definitely a tough one. But, you know, when you talk about that they're in the custody of the state, uh, it's for safety reasons. They don't want uh, anything happening to these kids. And, uh, you know, it's not a good place to be, but I'm sure that family members and friends are going to step up. And uh, let's hope for the best for those kids. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one to try and explain it to them. But uh, the professionals in that field, uh, you know, psychological counselors could perhaps uh, step in and do some uh, counseling. And let's hope for the best for these kids. Uh, they're in a very bad situation. Like you said, not only losing mom, losing dad too. So uh, not a good situation, but, uh, you know, let's hope for the best. Absolutely. Heaven uh, 57. Thank, thank you, you heaven. for the $2 super chat and for the compliment. You are both good peoples. I'll take that as a big compliment. Thank you so yes, much. Thank you. Thank really you. appreciate that. Well, folks, I, I think we uh, basically covered this as best we could. This is the first time we covered it. Actually, this is the first time in a long time we covered anything other than 
a quadruple murder in Idaho. And uh, we'll still be covering that case. Uh, Mickey Mantle, thank you so much for the 20-pound super chat. Sergeant Bill and Detective Phil, the best. Thank you, Mickey Mantle. Very Old much number seven. I love Mickey uh, Mantle. Lynn, um, I, wait, I just saw Lynn made them. Lynn um, Scratish, why would this beautiful woman marry a man who threatened to kill her before they were married? Well, you know, Lynn, you can't explain attraction. Question. You know, you can't really explain it. Sometimes people put up with things that others would never put up with. Or, you know, when people uh, uh, get into um, domestic violence situations, they, they don't see a way out. They don't maybe think clearly on how to get out, and they think it's going to get better, and they love this person. This person swears they love them, and uh, it's a vicious cycle is what it is. When you think about the Brian Laundry case and Gabby Petito, uh, there was some domestic violence issues there, and he would always uh, swear he was going to change, he was going to get better. And that's unfortunately, like you said, that's one of the things uh, of this vicious circle that uh, – you know, uh, the abuser, you know, apologetic, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, and the victim falls for it, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, continues on with that person, that relationship, but uh, again, uh, not good results, especially in this case. Absolutely not. So, folks, that's our show for today. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if there's any new information and even prurient information, information that we think you should know in regards to the Idaho case. So we will definitely go back to that. We all know that it basically was given a six-month uh, sort of time frame between the next time they have to appear in court, which is June 26th. So during that time, they're going to be trying to investigate all the evidence that the police have and all that's going to be presented against uh against Brian. And uh, so that's the six-month delay. And then they'll go back in the end of June. And as I said, mark my words, they're going to ask for a stay until September. So it very well could be close to eight months before this case uh, goes. Phil, final words. Final words. Uh, this is a heart-wrenching case again. Uh, however, we do seem to have the perpetrator uh, in custody. I think there's going to be a, a good outcome with regard to justice in this case. And I just wanted to make a comment about our fans and our subscribers. This interactive uh, format that we have on the podcast that we do, that's the part of it that I love, that we have people that'll make comments. We can answer their questions. They can challenge something that we say, and we can explain why we said what we said based on our uh, criminal justice, uh, law enforcement backgrounds. So again, that's the best part of it. Keep subscribing, guys. Keep giving us the thumbs up and keep the comments and the questions coming. That's another good part of it that we'll be off the air. We'll look at the comments and throw some, uh, you know, some comments back at you. That's a good part of this uh, podcasting business. Absolutely. Judy Fisher, thank you so much for the $10 super sticker. Jennifer, I got a comment on this. Uh, it's very important, and I'm glad and and you commented on this. Uh, love makes you do crazy stuff. Me and my alcoholic boyfriend broke up and got back together a million times, and he finally died at age 42. Jennifer, the, I you know I can't condone that behavior, and I'm not judging you, but you can't go back when things are wrong. You got to leave. You got to get out of there. And Jennifer, another thing that I've seen in my police career is that women can have a 
say, an alcoholic boyfriend, and they leave the guy, and then they meet someone, and they go for another alcoholic. There's something in their psyche that attracts them to the same exact type over and over and over again. And are they consciously doing that, or is it just something that then I'm not a psychologist, but I'm just commenting on what I've seen in my police career. So people that had alcoholic boyfriends or husbands, they they get rid of them, and then they go and get the same exact type of person again. Yeah, Billy, there is something to that pattern. Uh, I don't know if it's the uh, same behavior repeated. Uh, I don't know if it's familiarity or what it is, but I, I've seen that myself, Bill. I, I got to agree with you on that, and I hope that that young lady can uh, take something away from that and maybe uh, you know counsel others on if you're in a – abusive, alcoholic relationship, run for the hills. Like you said early on, Bill, use your legs, get away. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for listening today. I wish you have a great weekend uh, from retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon and retired NYPD Detective Phil Grimaldi. Thank you so much for listening and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just